Let me invite you to grab your nearest Bible, maybe that's a cell phone, and turn to the book of Habakkuk. You can find Habakkuk on page 737 on a pew Bible that should be somewhere nearby you. Habakkuk is the fifth to last book in the Old Testament, and it's renowned or well-known for the book of the Bible with the most Ks, if you're into that sort of thing. We'll be considering Habakkuk 1, chapter 1, verse 12, verses chapter 2, verse 5. And as we return to the book of Habakkuk, it's important to remember that Habakkuk is a book that's ultimately about faith. It's a book which helps God's people wrestle with God over the challenging aspects of life and grow in faith. You could subtitle the book of Habakkuk, Faith in the Face of Affliction. How do we as Christians who believe the promises of God, we confess this theology, we trust in what God has said in his word, how do we have faith in the face of affliction and trials and suffering? And this is the question that every generation of Christians must wrestle with. But for us, we find ourselves in some unique times, don't we? It looks like the times are changing at a faster rate than normal, or it's just a unique mixture of challenges. I mean, Kanye West is now running for president, so I guess that's something else to add to 2020. So for us, as I think about everything that's happened in the year 2020, even the important things like still lamenting Clemson's championship loss, you know, what does it look like for us to have faith? How does our theology and our belief in the gospel transfer into this active trust in the Lord? Now, two weeks ago, I gave you two steps in the process of growing your faith in the face of affliction. If you're going to cultivate faith in the face of affliction, I think the Habakkuk already gives us two points. First, we must address God. And second, we must embrace God. When we last left Habakkuk, he was wrestling with the bomb that God had just dropped on him. Two weeks ago, we saw Habakkuk bringing his complaints and his concerns to God because God had apparently abandoned Israel to their sin. Israel was left unaccountable and the wicked were infiltrating the infrastructures of the nation and God was sitting passively by as the nation was headed headlong into chaos. Now Habakkuk, who's frustrated over God's apparent passivity, called out God and began to question his, ask, his actions. In response, God told Habakkuk that if you think things are bad now, well, buckle up. God is going to send the Babylonians to destroy Judah and wipe the nation off from the face of the earth. God was going to use, as we talked about two weeks ago, this big, fast, bad nation to destroy God's chosen people. Now, if the Bible were a picture book, I'm pretty sure that Habakkuk's face would be like wide open at this point. He's absolutely baffled at what God has just said, and God even expects Habakkuk to be baffled. God's own people, his covenant sons, the recipients of the promises facing annihilation. Even worse, God was behind it. I mean, it would have been a bad case if, you know, God just happened to misplace the Babylonians and they accidentally stumbled into Judah and made a mess of things, but God was the one who was actually orchestrating all of these events. 
It was God's counsel. It was God's will for this to happen. Now, if we've learned anything about Habakkuk, he's probably not going to let God off easy at this point. And thus in verse 12, we actually have a second round of complaints against God from Habakkuk. Now, Habakkuk wanted God to hear a little bit more of his own thoughts and what he thought about God's apparent plan. Please follow along with me as I read Habakkuk 1.12. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. O Lord, you have ordained them as a judgment, and you, O Rock, have established them for reproof. You who are of pure eyes than to see evil and can look at no can, cannot look at wrong. Why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallow up the man more righteous than he? You make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. He brings all of them up with a hook. He drags them out with his net. He gathers them with his dragnets. So he rejoices and is glad. Therefore he sacrifices to his net and makes offering to his dragnets. For by them he lives in luxury, and his food is rich. Is, is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercif- mercilessly killing nations forever? I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me, and I will answer, and what I will answer concerning my complaint. I think Habakkuk's argument here is pretty clear because it's essentially the same one that Habakkuk launched in Habakkuk 1 verses 2 through 4, if you remember from a few weeks ago. Why is God sitting back in the face of evil? How can this God, the everlasting one, right? says that, the everlasting one, the Lord, he's sovereign over the nations, the Holy One with eyes so pure that it can't look upon evil, why is he sitting back? And why is he watching what's happening? Why is he sitting back when these sinners are going to destroy his people? But these aren't just sinners who are going to do this. They're really, really wicked people. And not only are they really, really wicked people, the people they're destroying are swallowing up, completely consuming These are God's people, his righteous remnant. His entire response is just littered with subtle jabs at God and God's plan. As he describes what's going to happen by the Babylonians to God's people. Just look at verse 15. Sorry, actually start in verse 14. He says that you make mankind like the fish of a sea. Habakkuk starts thinking about this and saying, well, maybe creation actually isn't as grand as I thought it was. Instead of this world where apparently justice ruled and God was sovereign over creation, then I guess creation is like the animal kingdom. We're now like fish. There's no law and order. And the nations can do whatever they want. If God is going to act this way and he's not going to intervene in injustice then I guess we're like the fish. Survival of the fittest. Strong eat the strong. Make your best life now while you can before a big fish comes. In verse 15, Habakkuk personifies the Babylonians into a specific person. He says he, talking about the Babylonians. 
And he describes what the Babylonians are actually going to do to Judah. Because if the human beings are merely vulnerable creatures, creatures, and if the people of Judah are vulnerable, then they're just going to be slaughtered. The people of Judah are just merely prey to these stronger nations. And he starts talking about in verse 15 how the Babylonians are going to use all these various instruments of destruction to subjugate, to kill, and to slaughter God's people. You start to see that in verse 15 where you have these hooks and these dragnets and these nets. Now the picture of hooks is particularly pointed, no pun intended, in verse 15 because of what the Assyrians and the Babylonians would actually do because they would conquer people and they would actually insert hooks into their faces and line them up and these caravans of captured slaves would wander back into lands they didn't know. And of course, if God's behind this, this is God's design. This is what, this is what you want, right? God, holy one, The second thing that we see is that Habakkuk draws out the Babylonians' wickedness. If you look down at verse 15, he says that they actually rejoice and are glad about these things. The the armies of the Babylonians are so perverse that they're they're comprised of men so corrupt that they take delight in humiliating and brutalizing other human beings. They rejoice and are glad. Habakkuk says, God, here's your instrument, right? This is what you're using. What does that say about you? Third, Habakkuk actually throws up the nation's idolatry right into God's face. As God is judging Israel's rebellion, it hasn't exactly escaped Habakkuk's notice that the Babylonians are just as bad as Israel or, or even worse. So Habakkuk wants God to remember that his chosen instrument isn't going to bring God any glory. Rather, they're going to worship the things that give them conquest. You read in verse 16, Therefore, he sacrifices to his nets and makes offerings to his dragnets. At the end of the day, the Babylonians aren't going to give God any glory. The only reason they're doing this is for their comfort and for their luxury. Verse 16. Yeah, God, that sounds great. Use that nation. What's their religion again? What are they going to do with, with this? And Habakkuk's final point is that he ultimately questions God's purpose for this. Verse 17. All right, God, so let's say that this happens, right? The Babylonians kill people of Judah. So what's next? Is he then to keep emptying out his nets and mercilessly killing nations forever? God, what's the end game here? Is this now the plan? Is this just normal life? Is it just chaos? And then Habakkuk 2.1. Habakkuk is determined to hear God's response. He is going to establish post. He is going to wait. And he is going to watch for God's answer. Having made his case, it's now God's turn. God, prove yourself. God, vindicate yourself. In Habakkuk 1, 12 through 2, 1, Habakkuk is completely focused on God and God's responsibility in this moment. Habakkuk has the spotlight on God. God's choices. God's actions. God is on trial. 
God is on the bench. Habakkuk is the prosecutor, and he wants to know how God is going to respond. Now, Habakkuk's words have an inherent force that must not be overlooked, because in Habakkuk saying these comments, he is trying to force God to change. He wants God to change his counsel and his actions, his plans. Let's think about how we sometimes will use language. If I want you to do something for me, I can make just clear commands. I can say, do this. Or I can use language in such a way that it actually propels action from you. So just an example with me and my daughter. I can, if she's playing with some toys and I want her to clean her room, I can look at her and I can say, clean your room. Or I can make comments like, have you cleaned your room? Your room needs to be cleaned. If she comes to me and wants something, I can say, well, your room needs to be cleaned first. So it's not just the commands, it's actually, we actually can use language in such a way that we're compelling people to change. And I think that's exactly what Habakkuk is doing here. Habakkuk's words are trying to compel God to change his actions, change his decisions. So in Habakkuk making comments about God's injustice, while highlighting certain aspects of God's character, Habakkuk thinks that the conundrum, the, the, the solution to this apparent conundrum is God changing. God must change. So Habakkuk thought is if I make enough reasons, if I make enough comments to reveal the absolute ridiculousness of this situation, God must change. Because if he truly sees my reasoning, and he truly sees my perspective, and if he doesn't change, then who is he? How long until this goes until he betrays who he is? And this point is clear from the end of Habakkuk's argument in 2.1. If you look at um, Habakkuk 2.1, he says that he was waiting for an answer to hear of his complaint. Now, it's important to note that the word complaint may be a little bit softer than what actually Habakkuk is doing. It's not like Habakkuk is just leaving like a one-star review of God on Amazon, right? What God, what Habakkuk is actually doing, it's more of a rebuke. Habakkuk is rebuking God. In a way that we see this, we can see this in Psalm 39, verse 11. This is an example of God actually rebuking someone. When you discipline a man with rebukes for sin, same word, you consume like a moth what is dear to him. Surely all of mankind is a mere breath. So just think about the audacity for what Habakkuk is doing here. Habakkuk knows very well that he just sent up a rebuke towards God. So in Habakkuk chapter 2, verses 2 and 3, God responds to his prophet. Let's read Habakkuk 2, verses 2 and 3. The Lord answered me, Write the vision, make it plain on tablets, so that he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. Now, God's response is pretty clear, isn't it? Sorry, Habakkuk. Nothing's changing. Write it. Write the vision. Take it to the press. It's coming. Ready for publishing, right? Now, Habakkuk can huff and puff and accuse and do all that he wants, but nothing that Habakkuk is doing is going to change God's decree and what God has said. And now we are in a standoff. 
Habakkuk is dug in his heels. God isn't changing. The conversation is stuck. I mean, where else is there to go? Have you ever experienced this? Maybe in a marriage or in a relationship, you know, both, both spouses think they're right, right? And then the standoff begins. Everyone retreats to their side of the corner of the house. Maybe one blockades the fridge and the ice cream from the other. You retreat to your safety zone. You're waiting for signs of surrender. Maybe this happens at the workplace, right? You and another employee get into a conflict, and you guys both wait, both watching, waiting for the other one to give. But what do we do if we're in a standoff, not with another person, but with God? So what do we do as Christians when we're in a situation where we're conflicted over present circumstances, and you want to have faith, but you're stuck on something God has done or God has decreed? How do you move forward? Because you can't have faith in God if you are currently in a standoff with God. Now, for some of you, maybe you have been in a standoff with God for a long time, but you've just forgotten about it because you've stopped praying. You know, God and I are good, right? Just haven't talked in years. Yeah, this thing's great, me and God. So, so how do we move forward? How do we get stuck out of this standoff? Well, we have to really do some reflection. If we are honest with the fact that God has decreed something and he's not changing his mind, and then the things that we may be mad at if they're going according to God's plan isn't going to change, then really nothing out there is changing. So where does that leave us? If God isn't going to change, his plans aren't going to change, where does that leave us? Well, if God isn't going to change and his, the circumstances he's ordained hasn't, aren't going to change, then the only thing that's really left to change is it's you. It's you. Habakkuk 2.4. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. Do you guys see what God is doing here? Habakkuk thinks that his faith problem is rooted in God's bad plans and those bad Babylonians out there. But God doesn't really want Habakkuk focusing on those things at all. God essentially says to Habakkuk, and he says to us, he says to you that the most important thing right now is not what's going on with those Babylonians. It's not going on what's going on with what God has decreed, but what the most important thing is what's going on inside of your heart. Habakkuk's faith problem doesn't stem from what's happening out there. It stems from what's going on in here. And God makes that very clear to us. And this is what God puts in front of Habakkuk, your response to what I'm doing is going to be based upon one or two things. Either you're going to be puffed up, you're going to be confident, you're going to challenge God, or you're going to be humble, and you're going to submit, and you're going to trust. You're going to have faith. It's almost as if God is saying, Habakkuk, look, don't focus on what's going on out there, right? Don't focus on my plan. That's not going to change. What's in your heart? 
What's going on in there? Are you going to be puffed up? Are you going to be proud? Or are you going to demonstrate that righteousness is actually in your heart by living a life of active faith and trust in me and God? Who here likes to drink tea? I like tea. I also like coffee, right? Sometimes a good afternoon you need some tea. When you make a cup of tea, you actually have two items that are really important. You have a cup of water and you have a tea bag. Now, really important scientific stuff happening here. What is the role of the tea bag in making tea? You don't you think about it. You don't have to say anything. But the tea bag contains all of the flavor and all of the ingredients that's going to come out in the tea. What's the role of the water? The water is actually just the context to reveal what is in the tea bag. The water contributes nothing to the flavor, to the taste, and to the quality of the tea. So the water isn't going to pull out of the tea bag anything that is not in the tea bag in the first place. It must be first in the tea bag before it becomes out in the tea. So here's an application for you. Whenever you are facing trials and challenging circumstances and you start to see sinful responses in your life to what's happening, the, the trials and the circumstances are not actually the cause of your problems. The root or the source of things like unbelief or anger or anxiety or frustration or worry or bitterness or resentment, it's not those people and it's not those circumstances, but they're being drawn out of things that are already in your heart. Because these afflictions, guys, and these challenges are only the water. Your heart's the tea bag. And whenever you face the trials and afflictions, there are times of revelation. And you actually can really see what's going on in your heart. So if a trial and a circumstance in response to that, you're seeing sin in your life, it's only revealing what's in your heart in the first place. So question, how have you been responding to recent trials? How have you been responding to recent afflictions? Have you been angry? Have you been bitter? Have you been anxious? The million dollar question then is that what are these recent trials and afflictions revealing about what's actually going on inside of your heart? is when God tells Habakkuk that the Babylonians are coming and Habakkuk launches into a rebuke of God, God doesn't actually let him travel down that path for long. And God redirects Habakkuk's focus away from what God is doing to analyzing what's going on in Habakkuk's heart. So the third point for us to consider, if we're looking at cultivating faith in the face of affliction, we've already addressed that we need to address God, and then we need to embrace God. But the third step is this. We must examine, or you must, examine your heart. 
And in looking at this conversation between Habakkuk and God, I think that this passage can actually provide us with three very helpful questions that each of us can use to see what's going on inside of your heart. So, first question for you. If you want to cultivate faith in the face of affliction, ask yourself this question. When I think about the trials and afflictions that I face, what can I control? What can I control? Let's look back at Habakkuk 2, verses 2 and 3. Remember here that God essentially says that what's going to happen in Habakkuk's life is secure. It's not changing. It's already set. Habakkuk has no control over the fate of the nations, no control over the Babylonians, no control over the fate of God's people. And even in there, he doesn't really have control upon the outcome of his life. And if you and I are honest with ourselves, we actually don't have much of that control either. You know, none of us have control over where, where we're born, when we're born, your major influences in life, major events in your life. All those things are kind of outside of your control to a degree. And even in the areas where you think that you are in control, let's, let's take, for example, choosing a spouse or moving here, or this career, or this health, right? You actually don't have control over the results of your choices. So you may make a very good plan, and you may have a very nice course in life, but you do not actually have any control over the outcomes. You know, you can set, if you were an old sailor and you were setting your course for the seas, you're always dependent upon the wind to actually get where you're going. And if you ever found yourself in a situation with unexpected unemployment or unexpected illness, I mean, how quickly can our, the, the, the mirage of control just evaporate? We make plans, but at best, they're only plans. And every plan can get off course real quick. Guys, we actually don't have much control of what happens in our lives. But who has control? Scripture says that it's ultimately God who has control. Ecclesiastes 9, 1 says this, But all this I laid to heart, examining it all, how the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. Whether it is love or hate, man does not know. Both are before him. Who has control? The deeds of the righteous and the wicked are all in the hand of God. And this same principle not only applies to circumstances, but it also controls, it applies to people, right? Habakkuk can't control what the Babylonians are going to do. That's why he's here. Habakkuk has no control over what God's people are going to do. He can't control their worship. He can't control their thoughts. can't control their emotions, their desires, their words. I mean, that's all that got Habakkuk into the spot in the first place. I mean, if Habakkuk was in control, he would have just clamped down on the people of Israel a long time ago, and this conversation wouldn't have been happening. And then Habakkuk's complaint to God has that assumption that, you know, God, you're actually in control. And in his heart, that's the problem, right? So, in your life, what do you not have control over? If you're honest, you don't have control on your circumstances or the outcomes of things in your life. 
And then you don't have control over people. You don't have control over others. And what do you have control over? You are in control of you. You are in control of your responses to people and circumstances. You can control your thoughts, your emotions, your actions, your desires, and your words. You, Scripture would teach, are responsible for you. And since you are the only person in control of you, then the fruit in your life, your words, your actions, your desires, your emotions, all of these are results of your choices. We see this principle all over Scripture. Let's look at Galatians 6, verses 7 and 8. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that he will reap. For the one who sows to his flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit reaps eternal life. Paul doesn't say that any of us are going to reap destruction because of what's happening on the hill or in the White House. You won't reap eternal life if the majority of Americans swing this way rather than that way. But in our lives, you will reap what you sow. So, if you sow to sinful desires of your flesh, Galatians 6-7, you will reap corruption. If you sow to the Spirit, you will reap eternal life. So in response to everything to everything that's happening right now. You sow, and if you sow to the flesh, you harbor anger or bitterness. You grow lax in your spiritual disciplines. You are filled with a sinful anxiety or worry. Scripture would say in these things, you're actually sowing to your flesh. And that's going to determine whether or not you're going to reap eternal life or corruption. But if you sow to the Spirit, if you are motivated by, Scripture calls us to have a love of God and love of others, faith in Christ, and you cultivate the fruits of the Spirit, then you will have eternal life. But Jared, there's some serious things happening right now. I mean, is it wrong to be concerned? Is it wrong to, be, to wonder what's going to happen or be angry at sin? Well, no, it's not. Those are neutral responses, right? To have concern is a neutral response. But the problem is that most of our neutral responses don't stay neutral for long. So where does that go? Does that go towards sinful worry and anxiety, if you have concern of something? Or does it go towards prayer and faith and a persevering love towards others? Here's a helpful guide for assessing your heart. Look at any situation that you may be tempted to sin right now and ask yourself the question, what, can, what can't I control about this situation? I can't control others and circumstances. That's God's realm. He's got it. What can I control? I can control myself. I can control my thoughts, my choices, my desires, my actions. And this leads very nicely into our second question we can ask. 
Because if it is true that what we see in our lives is not the product of our circumstances and it's not the problem of people, then it's, but it's about me and my choices, then we can ask ourselves this question. What do my choices reveal about my heart? What do my choices reveal about my heart? Because Jesus teaches that what you see in your life ultimately stems from your heart. Luke 6.45, the good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good. And the evil person out of the evil treasure of his heart produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So there's a very vital connection between the fruit in your life and what is in your heart. And a good person who has been born of the Spirit, who has believed the gospel, and has good desires and treasures that have been cultivated by the Spirit and discipline, will produce good things. On the other side, someone who finds themselves giving into flesh, someone cultivating sinful desires, will produce evil. James says this in James 3.12. He asks the rhetorical question, you know, can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives? Or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. What's the point? What you see in your life is going to be the product of what is in your heart or what you most truly are. So a righteous person will produce fruits of righteousness. A wicked person produces sinful fruit. Here's another scripture verse for us that helps us think about this reality. 1 Corinthians 3.3. 3. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, you guys see the jealousy and the strife, right? Are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? That's what, the, that's what normal people do. But you're Christians, right? Or James 3.16. You guys know John 3.16. I memorized James 3.16 too. It's a good one. Needs more publicity. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. I find this one very helpful for me. So if I see disorder and evil in my life, you know, anger, depression, worry, bitterness, resentment, frustration, I can pretty well assume, medical and physiological things aside, that I can pretty confidently assume that somewhere in my heart is selfish ambition. Somewhere some jealousy some desires that are out of order. Somewhere what, what I want has come into conflict with what God has said or God has decreed. And if I am no longer motivated by a love of God and a love of others, it will be selfish ambition in my heart. So if I want to know what's going on in my heart, I need to analyze my actions and see what it reveals about my heart. And so this is interesting when we think about Habakkuk chapter 1, verses 12, and chapter 2, verses 1. Because in this section, we actually have a very clear picture of what's going on in Habakkuk's heart, don't we? We can ask this question of what we read earlier. What does this situation reveal about what's going on in Habakkuk's heart? You know, even though Habakkuk feels completely justified in what we read earlier, Habakkuk's words and actions of rebuking God standing confidently for God's response, reveals that Habakkuk's heart is harboring maybe a little bit too much self-confidence or trust in himself, too much suspicion of God, 
Furthermore, Habakkuk's words reveal that maybe Habakkuk has a little bit too much confidence in what he understands of the situation. He thinks he's got God kind of figured out and even has the audacity. I'm going I'm to rebuke God here. So in verse 13, Habakkuk accuses God of being idle towards the sin of Israel, right? And then not only them, but also the Babylonians. Since God is allowing this injustice to happen, Habakkuk connects maybe too many dots. God must be idle. He's not achieving justice here, it looks like. In verse 14, Habakkuk starts to really deny God's governance over creation. I think that's the main point. In verse 14, he says that you've made mankind like the fish of the sea and they have no ruler. God's kind of abandoned. No one's ruling this anymore. No one's watching over it. God must be out of the picture. But does Habakkuk really know what God is doing? Does does, Does Habakkuk deserve to know? Does God really need Habakkuk's commentary on his governance of the world? Think about verses 15 through 17. Habakkuk starts to question God's goodness and wisdom. So this holy God is going to do that? He's going to allow them to get away with what? How long is this going to last, God? Is this really your plan? Do you guys know that every time that we sin, that there actually is some aspect of God that we are denying? I mean, just just think about it. Every time that you sin, in some way, you can justify it by saying that God isn't really all that he says he is. Or God is not really the solution to our problems or the, the source of our satisfaction. So, if, he, if God is not the ultimate source of my joy and he's not omnipresent and omniscient, you know, then you can look at porn with no consequences. If God is not a God of justice, then no one's really going to bother with me if I don't treat my neighbors or my family or my employees the way they're supposed to. If God's not really righteous and holy, I don't really have to worry about being pure with my words or my thoughts, what's going on in my heart. You know, God isn't really wise and good because I sure know what to do with those people. And if I really was in charge, I'd make it happen. God isn't sovereign, and he isn't patient, and he hasn't, doesn't have a particular care. So what's going to happen? What's going to happen? What's going to happen? And if this is what Habakkuk is thinking about God, how do you think he treats his neighbor? You think that Habakkuk's critical spirit might translate into the neighbor he sees during the week? You think that Habakkuk's really going to be focusing on God's law and God's commandments when he's so fixated on what the Babylonians are getting away with? So the question for us is, what does the fruit in our lives reveal about our hearts? Think about the sins. Hopefully you have a few things in your life that, you've, that this conversation has maybe sparked for you. Think about those. Now, what do, what, does your, what do your sinful choices reveal about what's going on in your heart and then what you actually are believing about God in those moments? If we truly embrace God's sovereignty and his goodness 
and his patience. What would change? What would change in our hearts, guys? So as you organize the fruit in your life, maybe start to reflect upon your choices and what they reveal about your heart, something else starts to become pretty clear. This is the third question you guys can, can write down. What is ruling my heart? Because if we talked about earlier in Habakkuk 2.4, his response depends upon what's ruling Habakkuk's heart. The sad thing is, is that Habakkuk's heart actually has the possibility to look a lot like the Babylonians. It might look different on the outside, but both of them are puffed up. Both of them have the potential to be crooked into response to what God is seeing. So that's either going to happen. Habakkuk's going to respond to these things by letting pride and being puffed up rule his heart. Or he's going to demonstrate the righteousness of his heart by living a life of active trust in the Lord. So you can boil down this principle to two words. Is Habakkuk's heart going to be ruled by pride or by faith? Pride or faith? Because if you really think about it, they're two sides of the same coin. Both boil down to who you're going to trust. Who are you going to trust? Because either you're going to have faith in God, you're going to trust his plan, his wisdom, his character through your circumstances, or you're going to be prideful. And if you're prideful, who are you trusting? You're trusting you and your wisdom and your perspective and your plans. But I really hope you see how sinister this can become. Because if you're having sinful responses in your heart in response to the different trials and temptations, then somewhere in there you may have some sinful desires and selfish ambition. And sinful desires are always rooted in some level of pride where I am trusting myself, my ways, my perspective, and my law above God. But for me to exalt myself above God in pride is to make myself essentially God. And this is why, if you want to cultivate faith in the face of affliction, you must examine what's going on in your heart. Because if you are ignoring the sin in your life, letting things like bitterness, anger, anxiety, and these things grow, while asking God to give you faith to trust him, then your words may be communicating that you want to trust God, while your life is showing that you ultimately are trusting just in yourself. Which is why, if you want to grow in faith, you must examine your heart. Because your faith will only grow if you are fighting against the pride and the sinful responses which are revealed by trials and afflictions. Earlier in this service, we read Jeremiah 45. In Jeremiah 45, God addresses Jeremiah's helper, Baruch, as Baruch is lamenting everything that's happened in Jerusalem. Now, Baruch and Jeremiah actually saw firsthand everything that Habakkuk talks about. 
they saw the Babylonians come and destroy God's people and take them into captivity. But the lives of Jeremiah and Baruch were marked by failure. They preached the message no one wanted. They were harassed by people that they were supposed to go and help. And no one, literally no one heeded their warning. Have Jeremiah's job, as you know, a mission statement. I'm going to go preach and no one's going to listen, right? Everyone's signing up for that one. In Jeremiah 45, we actually see Baruch weeping over everything that's transpired in his life. In Jeremiah 40. 5.3 records Baruch saying, Woe is me, for the Lord has added sorrow to my pain. I am weary of my groaning. I find no rest. And hear what the Lord says to Jeremiah. Thus you shall say to him, Thus says the Lord, Behold, what I have built, I am breaking down. And what I have planted, I am plucking up. That is, the, the whole land. And do you seek great things for yourself? Seek them not. For behold, I am bringing disaster upon all flesh, declares the Lord. But I will give you your life as a prize of war in all the places to which you should go. Do you see what what God's saying here? God reminds Baruch that everything in Baruch's life was ultimately about God. While Baruch was witnessing rejection and harassment and mistreatment and running for his life and the Babylonians coming, everything in his life was only what God was doing. God was breaking down what he had built. And God was plucking up what he had planted. God was bringing the disaster upon the flesh that he created. Baruch was just a servant just a messenger. And then God asks Baruch, one, I think one of the greatest questions that appears in the Bible, do you seek great things for yourself? It's as if God is saying this, Baruch, everything you see in your life is about me. This is what I am doing. You are serving me. Everything, Judah, the Babylonians, Your life is for my glory. So why do you seek great things for yourself? Why are you making everything that's happening about you? I think God puts his finger on the money because Baruch was groaning and sorrowful and mad because he was making everything that was happening about him. Baruch might have been a faithful servant, but he maybe was a little too fixated on the outcomes when he was just called to run the play and let God be the coach. Whenever we get angry or we groan or we complain or we get anxious, God asks us the same question. Why do you seek great things for yourself? Why are you making this about you? And even as Christians, God has given us so much, right? So why does what we're going through now hurt so much? Friends, why is everything happening that we are seeing today? We talked about two weeks ago, everything is happening for God's glory. 
So have Harbins, Community Baptist Church. Think back to 2020. Have you been angry? Have you been sad? Have you been sorrowful? You've been anxious? The question for reflection for us is that are we making what's happening in the world today about us? Are we seeking great things for ourselves here when we're just sojourners? Because if you are seeing sinful responses in your life to what's happening in the world right now, it's because you may be in your heart, selfish ambition, making these, circ- these circumstances not about God's glory and about serving him and letting him have the outcome, but because his plan is somehow going to impact you. Maybe this change in our country versus that change, or how COVID is impacting you here. And instead of being just faithful servants where God has called us, they were becoming a little bit too fixated on the outcomes. So friends, as you look to continue cultivating faith in the face of affliction, and you examine your heart, what do you see? What can you control? What do your actions reveal about your heart? And then what is ruling your heart? Is it faith or is it pride? So if you're tracking with me, because I can't control what you're doing either, and you're starting to see some connection, maybe there's some, something going on between the sin in, in my life and the pride I'm having, what now? What do you do? Well, take comfort in the fact that God will be gentle and patient with you as he is with Habakkuk. I mean, that's, that's the greatest part of the story is that God doesn't just blast Habakkuk's head off, right? I'm complaining, poof. <laughs> but God just points Habakkuk gently and slowly to the heart of the issue and that we need to continue the Christian discipleship of just humbling ourselves before God. And But how do we do that? Where should you go? You go back to the beginning just of the gospel, because the gospel message tells us that if we really have made Christ not only this, this guy who gives us fire insurance, but our Lord, then our life was never about us. Nothing's ultimately about you. But your life is for God, and it's for Jesus. And God demonstrated his love for you before you loved him by sending his son to live the life that you could not live, to die the death that you deserved, so that you would have eternal life and that you would have righteousness. And even in Habakkuk 2.4, there's a question I didn't really spend much time thinking about. What's well, asked is here. How can Habakkuk say that the righteous will live by faith if none of us are righteous? How can our hearts change so that we are righteous instead of ruled by sin and pride? How can we truly have faith? That's just the reality that every person's faith in righteousness is a gift from God that Christ gives us his righteousness, his perfect moral record, and the power to live for God's glory and to repent of our sins if we repent of our sins and trust in him. 
So friend, if, if I caught you in between a rock and a hard place by something here, just know that our God is incredibly gracious, right? That we can come to him and let him know everything and he will restore us. And remember also, if you're a Christian, that remember that part about Baruch, you are only a servant. You are a slave. Your life, like Baruch's life, like Habakkuk's life, is not about you. And whatever trials come over the horizon, our responsibility is to choose what we are going to sow. Are we going to be ruled by faith? Are we going to sow to the Spirit? Romans 6, 17 through 18 reads this. Thanks be to God that you who are once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching that you, have, that you were committed. And having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. And maybe if you're here right now and none of this really makes much sense and you're, how do, how do I become a Christian? I see these problems. There is a lot of people here who love to talk to you. So, as we continue in Habakkuk and as we journey towards, hopefully, faith in the face of affliction, first, you must address God. Then you must embrace God. And then you must examine your heart. For the righteous one will live by faith. Let's pray. Father, these are, these are weighty words and they, they cut to the core of, of us. Because Father, you know that we are but dust. And how easy it is for us to trust in ourselves, trust in our wisdom, trust in our strength. But Father, you have so much more for us in Christ. And so, Father, for those who may be on the edge of, of thinking through what the, the cost of it would be if they really let go of their pride and trust in you, Father, I ask that you'd comfort them. Father, if there is pride and selfish ambition that we have not repented of, we're not fighting, may you, may you stop us. May we truly submit to you and to your wisdom and to your word. For you are our God and you are our salvation. In Christ's name, amen.